I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. A tree whose hungry mouth is pressed pressed against the earth's sweet-flowing breast. A tree that looks at God all day and lifts her leafy arms to pray. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in her hair. Upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me. I'm not lovely as a tree. But only God can make a tree. Oh, yes. Oh, Aaron. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to Soul Scene. Aaron and I have a poem of the week here in our household, and this week he decided to just steal it. Yeah. So all credits go to Joyce Kilmer, mm-hmm. who wrote that poem <laughs> in 1914. And maybe you could tell that it wasn't mine by Alicia's laughter and the overt references to God. Mm. But I still think it's nice. It's a nice kind of... It fits our semester. It fits mm. the nature semester. And then I was thinking along the lines of our poem of the week that we have in the household, what is some analysis of that poem? What's it really trying to say? What do you think? It's trying to say anything man-made will not equate to the beauty of nature. Mm. And we can try. We can put together nice words. We can put together nice paintings. But at the end of the day, the intricate beauty yeah. on a biological level and an aesthetic level of a tree, for example, will never equate to the beauty of a poem about a tree. I was even thinking not just the beauty, but the cohesion, the oneness that a tree has. Because obviously the poem starts by saying, I'll never see a poem as lovely as a tree. But then it goes on to say about how intimately the tree lives with rain and birds and things. Mm. As if our things, even if you make a completely pastoral or like naturey poem or painting, just because it's from your hand, kind of to an extent, it will always be reflecting humanity a little bit. Like there will always be mm. a bit of a separation. Yeah. Anyway, um, today we're talking about living in that separation or something. We're talking about community design today, especially leaning towards the nature aspects of it, because I suspect we will have a more architecture and community designed themed semester in the future. So we don't mm-hmm. want to overstep on that but it's important part of nature is how we incorporate it into our own domiciles and um and dwellings and we talked before about house plants so i think this is kind of an extension of that discussion city plants Mm -hmm. or town plants exactly and also talking a little bit about how human settlements can try to be a bit more one with nature instead of it being like okay this is where the buildings are this is where the nature is how to intertwine them a bit better and in our zine, we talk about this a bit on the first page. So if you're interested, you can purchase our zine through the link in our description. All the proceeds go towards eco-justice. They're handmade, hand-designed, handwritten. Very funny, very informative, <laughs> very inspiring. And you'll make a new friend because there's a guy featured in it who I just love. So, mm-hmm. And you can also subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, leave a comment or a like. And we're on YouTube as well. So our first question is about the nature of urban living Mm -hmm. and how it is perhaps inherently contradictory or opposed to that of nature. Mm -hmm. And I kind of started this by trying to find the definition for urban or urbanism. And it was frustratingly difficult (laughs) because every every definition online just refers back to like of or relating to a city, Mm -hmm. obviously. And then when you look at definitions of cities, it's 100% variable by country, by region, and it's just like everybody has their own definition. So I thought to an extent we could we could try and define it a little bit. 
in terms of its relationship to nature versus rural living? Yeah, I think for the purpose of today's episode, it'll be anything other than very rural that we're talking about. Because even rural by this internet definition is still a grouping of homes. There's a school, there's a hospital, there's a few grocery stores. So I think, in my mind, city or urban living would be any kind of sprawled settlement of people connected by concrete roads would probably be a big part it has of to it. Be concrete. Yeah, because if it's dirt what roads, about I feel like it's a bit less. Oh, you know what I mean. I think, I Hate. mean, there's obviously the markers of like population, mm-hmm. population density. Yeah. But I just also think that like by, by its definition, it is, it has less nature mm-hmm. than rural. Like that's a big part of it, right? Yeah. It's probably like one third of the parts of it. So that's kind of what I was thinking for this question. So my my easy answer is like yeah, they're they're like by definition kind of incompatible. Mm. I was reading, and even the biggest cities still have about one sixth of the land mass covered by trees and green space and things like that. Not necessarily the most biodiverse. Um, so therefore, it's five sixths percent concrete buildings. People. People. Yeah. I was just kind of, I was trying to extend that definition a little bit in terms of like describing the nature that then is present in cities. Because I think another kind of funda- fundamental way of putting it is that when urban places, when they exist, nature kind of bends to them. Mm-hmm. Whereas when rural places exist, roughly speaking, the human buildings kind of, and human infrastructure kind of bend mm. to the nature. That was yeah. just a, a rough way of, of putting it. So I was thinking that, like, however green a city is, like, we live in Montreal, which is a rather green city. Like, there's mm-hmm. parks all over the place, there's trees, there's a lot of little farms like you um, volunteer at. Every kind of element of nature is controlled, mm-hmm. like, by definition. By definition, there's no wilderness present, which there can be in rural living. That was kind of my mm-hmm. my way of distinguishing those two yeah i think presence of wilderness is a great indicator and i think the presence of wild areas is a great place to start for this conversation about designing the solacine version of this the solacine city and how it will incorporate nature i think it will be a lot more wild areas but you can't just throw a wild space into a city without the people knowing about what it is, and also how to take care of it. It's been attempted across the world by urban ecologists who are like, the best way to promote biodiversity would be to leave a plot of land completely wild, plant all native species, perhaps even introduce some native insects Mm -hmm. and so on to it. But it's like, if the people don't like that, like a lot of people still have a very Arcadian romantic view of nature and they think it should be very like a painting, basically stretch of grass, a few cool plants, but even in that aesthetic vision and aesthetic ideal, the species that you envision in it are not necessarily native to your region. So if you then throw in just a place with a bunch of scraggly grass and stuff that would perhaps normally grow in North America, people would be like, ew, this just looks like someone... So people wouldn't want it, in other words. Yeah, and therefore they might disrespect it, and if they saw someone else disrespecting it, they wouldn't reprimand them the way that if it was some kind of beautiful, super fancy, you know, landscaped 
place. Like a park. Yeah. I think another thing about urban ecology is often it will serve the needs of the people before it serves the needs of the nature. Obviously, it's like, okay, we need to reinforce this area so that we don't get floods. And so like th- that's what the urban ecologists would focus on when city planning would be just trying to find the best way to mitigate floods through nature. Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, maybe the best way isn't actually the most natural way. Yeah, that's what I'm saying with finding a balance of control and, mm-hmm. and wild. But I think, like, as I was saying, cities are 100% controlled. Mm-hmm. I think that just shows that that's what people want. Yeah. Like, even when you look at, let's say, solar punk visions of green cities of the future, they are very kind of architectural rendered trees lining a street maybe it's walkable maybe it isn't a big you know nicely trimmed park with a lot of trees maybe a pond some farms like i was saying but it's all very prim Mm -hmm. it's all very controlled and i just think for the most part that's what people living in a city want because you don't want to be like walking down the street and be like oh no there's a coyote yeah that's for people living in like timbuktu (laughs) (laughs) no but a lot of i read a lot about urban wildlife and how the idea of them as vermin or dangerous is mainly linked to our perception and our lack of smarts i suppose like a coyote isn't going to just attack you if you're walking by it and it's not going to just like come out of the woods and get you but it's like if you saw that you'd be terrified and therefore everyone would try and hunt down the coyotes that there's not in the urban area speaking from personal experience but it's like if Perhaps we were like, okay, this is where the coyotes live. We'll have to change our routines a bit. I think that's kind of the Solocene way. We'll be there'll be more urban mammals. Not like I think coyotes probably a bad example, but I think there could still be a lot more like deer roaming. Things that aren't necessarily aggressive, but they also mean that you have to sometimes stop your bike to let them pass. Whereas we might be annoyed today if that happened. Or even scared. Okay, so you're envisioning people going on their way to school and work, maybe petting a deer on the way? Yeah, exactly. Or like singing to some birds in some Disney? Some Disney sense, right? Of course. Okay. I think that's where we might differ a little bit in the definition of city. You and I, I mean, for the solo scene. So I guess listeners, they can just choose your path. Mm-hmm. So I can choose your own adventure. Um Because as I was saying, I think cities mainly attract people who don't want, who want a lot of control. That's the only way I can put it. Like the key is kind of in the term planning. It's like things Mm -hmm. are very planned out in terms of the presence of nature, which I don't think really is nature in a city. I think it's more like a facsimile of it. And you think, oh, and I think that there are those cities and then outside of that in the solo scene is just almost all wilderness and train tracks and mm-hmm. some rural settlements. Yeah. But you think that the Solocene city incorporates itself a lot more of that wilderness. Yeah, I think it'll be more 50-50 of the space that is wilderness and the space that is developed because I think this would allow a bit more ecological authenticity. So like within the developed areas, there'd be parks, as you're describing, just like normal open spaces because you have to control them. And as people are kind of becoming woke to the fact that nature's the best medicine, for lack of better words. Like, it's called the green prescription. Like, doctors, like, just go outside. It'll help with your mental health, lower cortisol, and so on. Uh, the green spaces, they used to perhaps be even 
within cities a bit more wild. Like I'm literally looking at Mont Royal, which is a big park, which is a nature reserve. It's completely designed and like you, there's no actual wildlife roaming yes. this huge green space, but it perhaps used to be. But because there's so many people using it, it needs to be more user friendly. But I think if there were more green belts kind of through cities or green corridors for animals to just live in, they might kind of leak into the cities a bit more. <laughs> but if that's the case, we'd have to respect them and not be like, ah, deer, we need to kill yeah. it. Or we need to like shove it back into the nature. We'd be like, ah, oh, the deer, it's walking through here. I just think the biodiversity within literal cities needs to go up probably like 30% would be what I would think is cool. Because right now in Montreal, for example, we have squirrels, pigeons, a couple seagulls, yeah. and maybe rats. You're forgetting something. What else? Little quadruped, hairy, very low to the ground. Chiens. No. Oh, marmots. Yeah, marmots. Yeah, there are marmots here. But like, there's not that many mammals. No, I know what you mean. But I think if it went up just a, a smidge, maybe the bird population was a bit more diverse and so on, I think it'd be good for the people because all research into the benefits of nature on people's mental health and physical health is just like, it could literally just be a patch of grass and it's going to have a pretty similar impact on the people's health. Therefore, because people are like a bit more into control and into like understanding what's there, there's no need for the people to have these areas be biodiverse. That they're not going to care if there's 80% more biodiversity in the soil or whatever. Yes. Doesn't isn't going to impact the people. Um, but I think it's a slightly dangerous way of thinking in the long term. Because they're, then we could just be like, well, we don't actually need these species for us. Yeah. But it's like it's good for the species and for the soil and for the survival of the plants i think they're both pleasant visions i would like to live in both places yeah they're both pretty great i just envision it being more that people leave the city to go camping and mm -hmm. such there's a lot of wilder spaces outside the city yeah but i think perhaps what we both agree on is that it's relatively easy to make the existing kind of template of cities green yeah like, i think so. when people say that they just mean visually green they're mm -hmm. like oh there's a lot of greenery this is a green city which yeah. is true, but I think I think about ways of making urban living feel more like you're in nature, even if, in my opinion, it is still very controlled. Mm -hmm. Because current cities, like take Montreal, they feel very geometric mm -hmm. because they are very geometric, however many trees are on there. And that's kind of an, an unnatural way of walking or being. Mm -hmm. When we were walking around, or maybe I should say newer cities, because when we were walking around like Rome or London or Paris, they're so winding mm -hmm. and so unplanned. And that gives me more of a natural feeling of discovery. Let me put mm -hmm. it like that. And there's also the fact that like there's other elements like um, the width of the roads. Like when you're kind of funneled down very narrow streets, that doesn't feel very naturey because mm -hmm. kind of intrinsic to nature, natural spaces in my mind is that there's a lot of open space and you feel you don't feel so constrained. Yeah. Like there should be a big difference between being indoors and being outdoors maybe. Um, another thing is like your view in nature. It's often unobstructed for, mm. for, a, for a long ways. Whereas in cities, especially ones that I think are kind of built with, with a skyline in view rather than built for the experience of the people walking around it. Um, there is no kind of gradual elevation like there would be on say a mountain range or on a plane. Um, it's just kind of 
these jutting buildings at random almost, mm -hmm. which is it kind of disrupts your view and it's it's just a an ugly feeling sometimes. Okay, so you're thinking like the the literal architecture and the city planning is a bit more leaning into biomimicry. That, yes, yes. Okay. I, I was think thinking about wonderful. ways to do that, yeah. Yeah, because I suppose in the solo scene there wouldn't be a way to literally just have wilderness sprinkled through because that would just be impractical. Well, I do think parks should have more more species. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I just think that like that is the divide between rural and urban mm -hmm. is where the where the deer roam to an extent. But if you disagree, like that's fine. Yeah. And listeners, I'm sure it's like if someone wants to live in like Snow White City, mm -hmm. then I just think that would just be called Snow White Town. Yeah, I guess it is a bit more town. It's called a city town in urban planning. Kind of my vision for all the Solocene cities. And that it's almost intentionally obtuse. Like in a city, everything's about as efficient as possible. Yes. And I think to an extent that's good for sustainability and for making the most out of life. Well, that's stra straight lines in the streets. That is uber efficient, right? Yeah. But it's like maybe just some planned winding roads, kind of like yeah. Venice or something. It's like, it's going to just take you half an hour to get one block over. Because like to get kind of historical with it, the way that those cities were formed, i.e. not really planned, or if they were planned, like we're talking about the old European cities, yeah. or if they were planned, um, it, they were planned by multiple different people over different centuries. And each mm -hmm. plan kind of stepped over the other one and knocked over buildings and stuff and replanned. That is more akin to the process of like a forest forming in nature mm -hmm. as in there was no there was no plan i'm not talking from like a spiritual sense but there was no like there's there's not much order to it they mm -hmm. just kind of it just kind of springs up where is necessary and where is efficient and there's kind of a, a beautiful like um logic to it but also like a really wonderful you get lost very easily and mm -hmm. i think there are some cities that have that capture that essence well and there are some where it's like this feels like i'm walking on a ruler or on a sheet of graph paper. Yeah, I mean, post-industrialization, it was just like, well, we have double the amount of people. It's most efficient to just build these yeah. highly planned grid cities and suburbs and so on. Yeah, I see what you mean. A few cities that I'd like to highlight for their biodiversity would be Mexico City. Within its borders, it contains 2% of the total world's biodiversity. What? Yeah. And all the dogs. Not the dogs. I think they have a lot of dogs. <laughs> Um, and the world's most biodiverse city is Cape Town, mainly because of its very variable habitat within the city. It's true. They have mountains, mountains ocean, ocean yeah. all this jazz. Um, but they also do a lot to maintain that biodiversity. And then finally, a species I would like to highlight is I was trying to find the most wonky by our standards because we have very, like everything looks the same. Pigeon, rat, squirrel. It's like they're same size. I don't know size. what that means, but okay. Um, I was trying to find the coolest animal that lives within a city. Okay. And is kind of like their version of a pest to an extent. And my choice was the marmoset. Do you see him? Or her? Looks splendid. Kind of looks like something from Madagascar. Yeah. Was it? I don't think those are marmosets. Okay. Marmosets are from South America. Mainly, they're lemurs from... Madagascar. It looks like a lemur. Uh, they look very simple. Like their body is just kind of one thing. It doesn't look like it has joints or anything. It has a tail and they can have those little wingy hair things. Oh, that's what you, I drew there. I thought you just stylized it like Picasso. I thought, but you're <laughs> saying that's actually how flat they are. They're very one dimensional and their color isn't super different on a lot of them. Um, pygmy marmosets are the most famous because they're like tiny. They like fit on your finger. Mm -hmm. But 
This one is just like kind of the generic marmoset and it can be up to 20 centimeters long. Um, they just kind of roam around Brazil the way that squirrels roam around here. Uh, they're a type of monkey, but they're a new world monkeys. They're a bit genetically simple compared to most monkeys. Like they're not super primitive. That's what I was looking for. They're not super advanced. They don't have wisdom teeth. They don't even have, um, like their fingers aren't really fingers. They're more just like claws. They're a bit simple um, genetically. Um, they can be kept as pets, but it's not encouraged because they they need a bit of variety in their diet and habitat to thrive. They live in families uh, of 3 to 15, and they like to eat insects, fruit, leaves, and they're really known to love gum out of trees. So like they're not chewing gum off the street, but they kind of like pick apart the bark and take gum out, and they chew on it. What color are they? Brown. Okay. So, thanks, Marmoset, for coming on the show. I feel, feel like they'd be weirdly vicious. They'd probably hurt. Yeah. As I said, they don't have this kind of claws. They probably wouldn't like humans very much. Anyway, the next question, or the next task, I suppose, something of a continuation of the last one, is to invent a new thing. Something easy. We do this every week on Solar Sea. <laughs> I feel like we, we struggle sometimes, but I had three options this time. Um, I start out with something very frivolous because we always kind of, when we're coming up with questions, we're like, let's do something silly. Mm-hmm. But then you were kind of um, hyping up your own choice. And you're like, I'm really excited for what I invented and it's so good. And I was like, <laughs> okay, maybe I shouldn't just choose the Mushroom Kingdom, which is yeah, what I had I see. written down. And I didn't really write much except breeding mushrooms for the sewers slash subterranean living spaces? Question mark. Just let your imagination run with it. Mushroom Kingdom. Okay. Mario. <laughs> I feel like because mushrooms are one of the things that you never see those around cities. You don't. Unless you're in someone's really gross closet mm. and they're growing out of there. But I don't really know how it would work logistically, what they would feed off down there. Mm. Maybe like dead rats Maybe. or the leaves. There are a couple of mushroom factories in Montreal. Mushroom factories? Yeah. So I didn't know about this at all. So, I mean, they just grow mushrooms, mainly um, lion's mane. They're indoor. Yeah. Factories. Yeah. Not farms. Hard to say with the fun guy. Yeah, exactly. For eating. For eating, yeah. I wasn't thinking about for eating. So you're just thinking about for decomposition and biodiversity? No, I, did, I wasn't thinking mm, at all. Just cool. Yeah, I just came up with the okay. term mushroom kingdom, then I tried cool. to... Create it. Yeah. I, I can see it. I think it would be interesting. The other one I was thinking, not an invention, but a cool example of umbrella theory. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to make that a thing on Solacene. Yeah. As in something is kind of aesthetically cool because it is necessary, mm-hmm. like someone having dirt on their face. Oh it's goodness. like, that's cool because that means they must have been doing some hard work or something. It's like the Viking rooftops. You know what I'm talking about? Those huts that had the green the grass on top. Okay. It's yeah. a, a sod roof or a turf roof. Do you think bring those back? Just, no, I don't think bring those back. I just think they're a neat example of umbrella theory and planning. As in... Yeah. They had to do this because mm-hmm. that's what was nearby and that was their means. And so it kind of looks cool. Yeah. I actually think the opposite of bringing it back. Because if people started doing that just because it's like trendy, yeah, that's the opposite of umbrella theory. I see. I low-key feel that with all the lead buildings I've ever seen. It's like, these in theory are cool. It's like, okay, there's a green roof. There's like water running through the walls to heat the yes. building. It's like, yeah, there's so many different things that these buildings have. But it's like because they're just like intentionally cool, yeah. it makes them almost uncool. 
Yeah, but some, <laughs> but also a lot. I mean, it depends on the building. Yeah. Because some of them are just functional and that's cool. Mm-hmm. But some of them, you're right, they feel more like a museum mm-hmm. and that's not so cool. Yeah. And then the one that I was actually excited about because I invented it once you said yours <laughs> was so cool is, um, I guess I'll call it nature clouds or nature smell clouds. And what this means is it's like a huge air freshener for the city because this is another big difference between the city and living in a rural area is that the only thing we really smell is cars. Obviously, mm-hmm. in the solar scene, very few cars, if any, in the cities. But really, what is producing the smell? It's still just kind of the stench of humanity. Mm. Maybe that's my misanthropy coming through. But in terms of like, <laughs> na- in terms of nature smells in a city, what I'm saying is you don't get very much. Exactly. Because of the industry and even in the solar scene, mm-hmm. just because of all the BO. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so all we really get is like the smell of rain. Mm-hmm. You can sometimes pick that up in a city. Which Stopped is snow yesterday. Yeah, I don't I don't buy that. Um <laughs> which is like rain smells nice, but mm-hmm. I think what if people want that smell of freshly mown grass grass? Mm-hmm. Or what else? Like farm. Farm smell. Decomposing decomposing. Leaves? If there's no mushroom kingdom like all these different <laughs> smells of nature, sea spray. Mm. So and I think this could also be democratically chosen. Probably each week, maybe each month. Definitely not each day. That would get too. That would be like a weather forecast, and that's that's too like rapid. Smell a change. forecast. Yeah, smell forecast. But I'm sure we have the technology for this. Bundle up. It's going to be buttered popcorn today. No, not like buttered popcorn. Like nature things. I see. I'm talking as I was saying, ways of making the urban environment feel more naturey, even if mm-hmm. they're not necessarily. Yeah. Even though they will be necessarily smells. Smells, yeah. Or perhaps just designing so that, like, the flower boxes along the streets have lavender or sage or something that's very fragrant. Mm, fragrant. The olive trees. Yeah. We're going to pump that into the air. I don't know how I feel about this pumping. What? <laughs> I feel like we have very different views of this. Why? It would be okay. safe for the environment. I don't. I guess you it. You think it would make another hole in the ozone? I think. Or in our lungs. Right. Have and, you seen <laughs> The Amazing Spider-Man 1? Yes. You know the antagonist from that film? Mm-hmm. What was his name? The lizard? The lizard. You know, yeah. remember his scheme? To pump the lizard juice into yes, the air yes, and make everyone it. into lizards. Yeah, I want to do something like that, but good. Mm. But what if it was co-opted for evil? Someone pumped a bunch of, like, cat hair and then everyone who's allergic to cats. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I know the details. Someone really evil makes, like, a smell of burnt toast. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, no, burnt toast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I see where you're going with this. There's potential there even if you think it's a little bit too fanciful now that's mm-hmm. an idea yeah it's an idea just a giant like those things they put on the front of cars the christmas trees mm-hmm. christmas tree smell yeah we used to live around christmas tree farms and it was a wonderful smell every december and i think cities deserve that mm. so my question <laughs> answers all kind of merged together a bit and i think that's maybe why i was speaking like it was so obvious because my invention and also my urban planning theory that I'll talk about later all kind of go together. So my invention does kind of already exist, but not really. Like it kind of exists as like a cool architectural okay. element. It's not widely spread. So already it's points for me because I actually yeah. was thinking outside the box. So mine are nature highways. Um, they have five benefits. One, verticality, because we like things being up and down. Yeah, we do. So verticality, Two, repurposing old infrastructure. So perhaps because there aren't cars, all these highways and different like parking garages, um, we could just tear them down. Or perhaps we turn them into these vertical nature highways, as I'm saying. 
And then the biggest benefit is biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Because in these areas, people wouldn't be using them every day. Perhaps they could be used, this is one of my other benefits, as a means of like, okay, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to take the nature highway instead of biking on the street or taking the bus or the metro. Like You could just walk through the nature highway, but I think it would have to be walking only. Um, and it would just be nice. Walk through nature to get to work. Just describe to me what is the nature highway. So you know a highway, how they're like up? Oh, an, an overpass. Yeah, overpasses. Okay. So turning those... So they are raised mm-hmm. on columns in the ground. Yeah. Say. Okay. Um, and then underneath could be where we bike, and therefore it's shaded. Or like a, um, a monorail, mm-hmm. which is now elevated in a city rail. Okay, yeah. I got you. Something like that with nature. And it could also help habitat fragmentation. So perhaps within the city, we have three big nature reserves, which are completely wild. You're allowed to kind of go in them. Using the national park scheme that we talked about a few weeks ago. So you have to have training to in them and they're not open all the time. But anyway, there's these. But maybe the animals live in them naturally migrate. Oh, so there's paths. It's like arteries between them. Yeah. I see. This is there are things in Canada from moose to do that, to cross highways. Moose crossing. Moose crossings. And yeah, they just go over mm-hmm. and they're kind of contained within cage like fences so that the moose don't walk onto the highway so it's kind of like that for the animals to migrate and then yeah promoting biodiversity mainly in aviatory that word species yes so that they can still exist in the city but they can go there and not have their circadian rhythms or their auditory cues interrupted because it'll be a bit more natural so when you're when you say there's nature on these highways yeah obviously it'll be it will vary based on the location of the city mm-hmm. the climate sometimes rainforest sometimes boreal forest or something mm-hmm. but what's an example like what would be on this there would be trees so a strip it's a strip of concrete let's say i suppose underneath okay yeah and then you would just kind of i see it as okay we put a bunch of soil there yes we introduce as many species as is biologically authentic mm-hmm. and then We'd have to help at the beginning. Yeah, of course. To kind of get it going, and then I think just kind of leave it. But is it like a forest, I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Forest is some understory going on. It's like we don't clean up when the leaves fall, and the, if a tree falls, we just leave it. We're not going to like be maintaining it the way that we would a park. And mm. this would encourage, yeah, I guess just species to exist without us bothering them. And then if they want to kind of mingle down to the bank or whatever, it's fine. But I don't think they will. They could kind of. I like the verticality because there's more opportunity for us to do our gliding. Yeah. Which is what I want to introduce. <laughs> rock climbing, things like this. Yeah. Web swinging. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a good alternative to roads. Like, because we're going to still have roads in the solar scene because, like, you need them for bikes and for buses. But it'll be a nice, kind of naturally climate controlled way for people to walk if they wanted to or just to. Maybe you could go camping in these little nature passes. Um, they're not going to be all over. Like There'll be genuine wilderness outside of the cities and in the green belts running between them. But yeah, like it will be inauthentic. It'll be as authentic as possible because it will be pretty much untouched. We don't have to worry about like, well, is there going to be lights and noise and stuff? Because it'll be elevated and a bit separate. Nice. I hope that makes sense. Maybe the fragrance doesn't even reach them. Maybe. Yeah. And then... This is also slightly inspired by my urban planning theory that I chose to highlight, which is garden cities. 
I've talked about Garden Cities. They've been highly inspirational to a lot of the things I've talked about on the podcast because I think they're wonderful. But they they have some issues. I think I'd be like a neo-Garden Cityist because they have a capacity on population, which I think to an extent is cool, but it would take obviously a lot of funding of like, so people don't get kicked out. Like Garden Cities, basically there's a central area with about 58,000 people in it. Yeah. Which is like the city. That's where the university would be, the big hospital, the big things. And then once that city reaches capacity, you build a... So there's a green belt around it. And then you connect one railway to a satellite city, which is the exact same... Like there's gardens, there's a hospital and so on. But it's just a little smaller and that has 32,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then you keep building these little satellites out and then it grows to a maximum capacity, um, 32,000 each satellite. With wilderness separating them yeah. and the rail track coming through. Yes. That's my, that's my vision. Yeah, it's my vision too. Um, and I think the population cap is interesting because it's like a lot of the garden cities that have been built, they've been built all over the world to varying degrees of success, of course. They tend to just kind of sprawl and not then as population maybe decreases just like the last 50 years or so as population in North America has just kind of gone down like reproduction rates it's like then they get abandoned then you just have a bunch of kind of abandoned developments for the sake of it so I think trying to have some kind of a limit or like oh the population's going down maybe we have incentives for people to move here I don't mm -hmm. know exactly how it would work but I really like the green belts and of course the whole idea of there being really centralized strategic amenities is great because in a lot of rural or even just like towns in North America, you don't even have basic amenities. It's like you have to drive three hours to get to a hospital. Um, and no one wants to go work at the hospitals in these rural areas because they're not great places to live, but these are going to be lovely. A key tenant of them is a big public garden, an arcade called the Crystal Palace, which is covered but it's also kind of like a greenhouse. So there's like nature inside, but there's also markets and so on. An arcade in like the Roman sense. And yeah, winter gardens. There's about 5,000 buildings, um, some co-op kitchens, some co-op gardens, and it's all accessible by train. So it's like anyone who lives in the city, you kind of know where they're working because there'd only be a certain, maybe this, it's built around a certain industry. Yes. It's like kind of why it pops up in the first place. And so it's like you kind of know how everyone works. So like the trains and the buses would be as strategic as possible. Because right now it's like, well, I just couldn't get to work on the bus because there's not a bus line that goes there. So mm -hmm. you either would have to have a car, you'd have to walk. Um, but here, like all of that would be orchestrated to a point. Yeah. But it's like obviously if it's top down, it's going to become a dystopia really quickly. So it has to be quite organic. Decentralized. Yeah. Central cities. Mm -hmm. Something like on campuses where people will be like, well, I'm an engineering student, so I'm going to live largely in this building with other engineering students exactly. near the engineering like campus or the engineering like yeah. But there's not going to be like, oh, there's no meal hall though for this residence. Like, of course, there'll be a meal hall because it's like logical. Yeah, I mean, people have kitchens. Yeah, but also like <laughs> today, it's like there's okay, all these people have built houses around this factory. Like that's kind of a bad example for the solar scene, but a good example for today. But like, okay, they build rings and rings and rings of houses around this factory. There's no hospital, there's no place to shop, so they still would need cars, yes. even though they all live yes. together and can access their work. In other words, being a town. 
mm-hmm. being a being a functional settlement. Yeah, which we haven't really, which we don't really have that much of these days for some reason. Yeah. Um, you also just brought to my mind a hot take of something that I think should return in the solo scene: exile. <laughs> I've been thinking about this recently. Maybe we'll cover it more in our solo scene in our crime semester, which I suspect <laughs> we will have, or our prison reform semester. But <laughs> oh my God. every time I'm reading about old, I'm talking about like ancient poets or painters or even medieval it seems like so many revolutionaries they just had this period where it was like well yeah then he was exiled from florence for 25 years <laughs> and i just think that's a cool it's a non-violent really non-violent okay. um punishment because it's mm. like it's kind of a punishment but also he can still go and explore the world just mm. not allowed back in florence yeah unless he sneaks back in mm. yeah exile though you, you don't think so i'm not on board with exile Maybe exile for like, hey kids, can't come inside. You have to go no, wander around the woods no. for a few hours. <laughs> I'm talking about punishment. Imagine in, you, in <laughs> high school, instead of like detention, you just like, gotta go in the woods. You can't come Well, back that's what here. happened to Harry and his friends. Exactly. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Draco. Yeah, they learned their lesson. They didn't. They didn't, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, for my like urban planning theory, I didn't highlight anything for the sake of this is what the solo scene will be because you already nabbed I that one, one, which is yeah. which is a garden city. So I was looking at other ones. I had this quote by Le Corbusier, the French architect, modernist, which was, to create architecture is to put in order. Put what in order? Function and objects. Yeah. I just thought that was a neat, a neat quote. His ideas on city planning are, to put it lightly, not our ideas on city planning. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of different kind of drafts and sketches and plans which were never built Mm -hmm. but the one city which he did have a big hand in building was in india it's called uh shandigar excuse the pronunciation and it's like it's cool they have some nice building my i've never been there but just from what i can read online it's like they have some nice buildings and architecturally it's quite sound but in terms of the actual planning it's like there's problems with housing and there's a bunch of slums built on the outskirts Mm -hmm. because essentially his like vision was segregating the different functions of uh society so Mm -hmm. it's like in a city this is like a housing district this is like an industrial district district this is like an entertainment district Mm -hmm. and as as you were just saying that actually doesn't make much sense at all it it was called like the towers in the park theory where it's like huge skyscrapers he was around like a hundred years ago so Mm -hmm. the issue of overpopulation in cities was just kind of coming to the fore and so i Mm -hmm. think it was it was maybe like a radical response to that where it's a lot of skyscrapers people live in and they look out on a more wild spot mm-hmm. and other amenities and things like this. I see. Um, he was also very, very into geometry. Okay. He hated winding roads. There was this quote of his that was like, winding roads are for donkeys. Mm-hmm. Straight lines are for like the soul of man or something like this. And he was like, uh, we need to have 90 degree angles at okay. intersections. He was very, very authoritarian. He, yeah. I think, essentially um, conceived of himself as the philosopher king planning all mm-hmm. the cities. And it was like, in his, felt kind of dirty reading it, but in all his like uh, theses, planning was capitalized P. It was like, <laughs> the plan is king. And it's, I was like, what do you, it sounds yeah. like he's insane or something. It's always but, a bit nuts when you read city plans. Almost every one that I read, even like the best ones that I love, it's like, this seems, yeah, very authoritarian. And... Well, that's the that's planning. Yeah, that's what I was saying about the old cities. It was wonderful because they mm-hmm. they were a somewhat natural spawn of, if mm-hmm. not the whole populace, at least 
different, several different generations of these wannabe mm-hmm. philosopher kings. You yeah. Know, each of them is, is kind of a voice of the people at the time. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's not what we think sites will have or what they want. Mm-hmm. But it just made me think about what do people want when they're living? Because that should be, that's really the answer to this question in terms of like, well, what kind of nature do people want mm-hmm. around them? And I was also thinking about the difference between not just an urban and a, and a rural town or city, but the concept of the home is different when you're in a city versus when you're in a more rural area because like you spend a different amount of time in each one mm-hmm. depending where you live. And like most often you own one and you rent the other. Like mm-hmm. there's, a, there's just fundamental differences in there that maybe are not so obvious, but they're intuitive because the way we live. But it's yeah. like, we talked about it a little bit uh, moving to Montreal. It's like, well, obviously we'll have less space because it's in a small apartment versus a house. Mm-hmm. But there's a library nearby. There's a cinema nearby. There's a gym nearby. There's a church nearby. So it's like you kind of externalize those mm-hmm. uh, elements of lifestyle. Yeah. And um, maybe I'm just explaining things very, like very, very simple things to people as if they're complicated. But it's, it just helps me to to think about these things. Also... A few weeks ago, I made the proclamation that I not just want to be, but I will one day become a marine biologist. Mm-hmm. I think I'm also going to become an architect. Okay. Yeah. Why not? Those would be my two things. Okay. Cool. My only two things. Yeah. I think cities also, in the solo scene, they'll be at once more and less vertical. Because right now, there's like huge verticality, right? Just in like one or two blocks with yes. all the skyscrapers. Yes. Um, and then around it, everything drops to like three stories. I think if everything within like a certain area was like six stories, it would kind of cut the difference. Because right now it goes like, it was like when we were in Athens and we went up and looked out at like the whole yes. city. And it was just like, I don't even know how far that was. It Probably was very, hundreds very and sprawling. hundreds of kilometers of just one story buildings. Oh, about hundreds of kilometers. But yeah, it, it was, was big. It was, it was very far. We went up on a mountain. Yeah. So that's kind of maybe a little mm-hmm. bit akin to the next uh, theory I wanted to mention, which is called landscape urbanism. Mm-hmm. And in China, there's a version of it called negative planning, which is described as largely adhering to feng shui as like okay. a sacred landscape, mm-hmm. um, abiding by the principles of ecology first. And there's this quote, it's like, a city's not a tree, it is a landscape. So you basically, you plan around the key mm-hmm. ecological infrastructure the key features yeah don't fill in mangroves and don't cover up rivers yeah i mean it's it's maybe a little bit um too late because Mm -hmm. most cities are built yeah but in terms of like building new cities that kind of planning um it says green space is like the base of the planning not street space Mm -hmm. so i don't really know how to visualize this but it's interesting i just thought it'd be interesting nonetheless Mm -hmm. to to kind of mention that yeah for sure i think well that's not really Nature. I was going to say we talk about retrofitting next week, but maybe we'll save that for the infrastructure and city yeah. planning next semester. Next week, we should talk about elephants. Okay. Poaching. Hunting? Hunting. Okay. And maybe like different materials in the home, in our lives, the mosaic of fabric and building blocks resource extraction yes in all its facets Mm -hmm. lovely thank you all for listening and once again we'd like to thank the marmoset for coming on the show and sponsoring this week's episode